you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the book of Titus. We're going to be finishing up this series today. We've been in a series titled God, God's Game Plan for the Christian Life. We've seen God's Game Plan for Church Leadership. Last week we looked at God's Game Plan for Christian Conduct. Uh, today we're going to shift into God's Game Plan. Part of what he's talking about today is actually God's Game Plan for Christian Living in the Public Square. We're going to look at that in more detail from chapter 3. Let me read to begin. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up divisions after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send to Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So from this text, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at a portrait of an unhelpful Christian life, a portrait of a beneficial Christian life, and the factor that makes all the difference. From Titus chapter 3, we're going to look at the portrait of an unhelpful Christian life, portrait of a beneficial Christian life, and the factor that makes all the difference. First, portrait of an unhelpful Christian life. Life In verses 9 to 11, Paul lists four traits of someone who's going to be largely unhelpful. The literal word there is useless in the church and in the Christian life in general. They're engaged in foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, Paul doesn't unpack these in any kind of detail, which may be a parenthetical way of him saying, look... These issues are so far off the reservation, I don't want to draw any more attention to them than listing them. But he does give us a clue as to what some of these may encompass. This word foolish controversy can mean speculations in contrast to revealed truth. They're speculative topics, they're peripheral issues, they're outer rim issues, they're very secondary, maybe even tertiary Issues. Now, the problem here is not that people have a mild curiosity about them. The problem is that they're preoccupied with them. 
One of the pet peeves that I have developed, and I'm not sure it's entirely sanctified, but one of the pet peeves that I've developed in ministry is the knack we have in the church to ask questions the Bible does not clearly answer. In my previous church, three to four times a year, we had what was called Fire Away Sunday. The senior pastor and I would sit up on the stage and all morning we would field questions texted in by people. We would, we would go through dozens of them in the morning and then I would keep a record of every question texted because hundreds of them would come in. And some of the questions that came in just boggled my mind. It's interesting, it's curious, but I hope that's not what you're hung up on. So let me be clear, my, my, my view on this, this is it. The most important questions we could possibly ask are those questions God's word most clearly answers. Okay, just so we know where I'm coming from. Okay, the most important questions we could possibly ask are those questions God's word most clearly answers. So if you're fired up about topics the Bible is less clear about than the topics the Bible's most clear about, you're flirting with foolish controversies. Now one area in in the Christian church today, we're particularly prone to getting sucked into the conversation regarding foolish controversies is end times stuff. Do you think the plague of locusts in the book of Revelation is referring to a fleet of helicopters? I don't know. Do you think Obama, Trump, or Kissinger is the Antichrist? I don't know. Can we talk about something the Bible is clear about? Can we get passionate about something that's black and white right in front of us? Okay. Enough of that. Now, let me, let me draw your attention to one other thing in here. Notice the negative emotions present where there are speculations in that list, dissensions, quarrels. These outer rim issues, these secondary tertiary issues don't lead to anywhere good. <laughs> and in instances in evangelical churches where where there are quarrels, I think that's exhibit A of a church that has drifted from a focus on keeping the gospel the main thing. So just so you know, right here, right here from this stage, Scripture's clearest teachings will be the main teachings of Alliance Bible Church. Okay? Scripture's clearest teachings will be the main teachings of Alliance Bible Church. When I spot a dispute in the church, my automatic reaction is to think gospel drift. Uh, I serve on the district executive committee for the Western Great Lakes District. We've got about 42 churches in our geographic district, and we meet four times a year. It's basically the board of directors for, for Alliance churches in our district. And every time we gather, I get a report from the district superintendent on all 42 churches in our district. Four times a year, a report on every church in the district. And there is always, always a report about a church that is going through a tough time of quarrels and dissensions, and it's a mess, just a mess. And, uh, and 99 times out of 100, when you boil it down to find out what is going on here, it's got nothing to do with the gospel. It's a personal preference someone has decided to dig their heels in on and split the church over. This is what Paul is warning us about. Be careful about how passionate you get about issues that are outer rim issues. Let the scripture's clearest teachings, 
be the thing that is your main thing. D.A. Carson prophetically writes on this when he says, when Christians lose sight of their first and primary allegiance, they will squabble. They will squabble. So Paul is painting a portrait here in these verses of an unhelpful Christian life. Gospel drift is a breeding ground for unhelpful Christians. And then the actions that Paul takes, uh, encourages church leaders to take in response to this is pretty strong. He says, warn them once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. They have nothing to do with them. The famous book editor, Maxwell Perkins, put it this way. He said, one of my deepest convictions is that the terrible harms that are done in the world are not done by deliberately evil people. They are done by the good by those who are so sure that God is with them, nothing can stop them, for they are certain that they're right. And sadly, nowhere has this been more true than in the church. So the most important questions we could possibly ask are those questions God's word most clearly answers. Second, portrait of a beneficial Christian life. So standing in contrast to the unhelpful Christian life is the beneficial Christian life in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul is venturing out into talking about Christian living in the public world the public life, the public square. He's giving us God's game plan for Christian living out there in society. He's already dressed God's game plan for Christian conduct within the church in chapter two. These two verses are shifting, discussing God's game plan for Christian conduct outside the church in, in society. And it's a pretty daunting list. He says, submit to rulers and authorities to be obedient so christians are to set a good example in being law-abiding citizens to obey laws not to cut corners additionally as christians engage in public life we should be ready for every good work every good work now by linking this with the mention of a christian's responsibility to submit to governing authorities and showing perfect courtesy toward all people paul is broadening what would be considered a good work this is good work in our public lives, in the public square, out there. So the moment he does that, he's encouraging us to consider questions like, what would be good for society in general? How can Christians contribute or serve to the common good? What would make our community better? The beneficial Christian looks to serve the common good in his or her public life. Roy Hattersley is the former deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK, and he's a public atheist. He once wrote about his experience as he joined some other Christians in serving the poor in the streets of London um, in conjunction with the Salvation Army. And after going through that experience with these Christians, this is what he said. He said, the arguments against religion are well known and persuasive, yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. Hattersley continues, he says, the correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian, he says. 
Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives. While they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. The truth may make us free, but it has not made us as admirable as the average captain in the Salvation Army. Remarkable quote. You hear the admiration in this atheist voice towards Christians because of their diligent work for the common good. It's not just Paul that's encouraging this. Peter does this as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Where is a pagan going to witness Christians doing good deeds? It's got to be outside the walls of the church, in community somewhere. Now, I don't know if seeing Christians serving the poor in the streets of London will lead Roy Hattersley to glorify God, but he's closer to doing so after witnessing this than he was before. The beneficial Christian life looks for opportunities to serve the common good. This past week, I got to tour the Family Enrichment Center in Grafton, which houses 10 charitable organizations, and uh, I got an orientation to these, a brief high-level orientation to these. If you're looking for a practical way to serve the common good, let me just say this. Stop by the Family Enrichment Center. Grab the first person you see. Hey, say to them, show me around and tell me about this place. They'll introduce you to people. You'll get to get a better feel for what's going on. It might be an opportunity for you to get involved through volunteering to serve the common good. We have the student union on the brink of being launched. You're going to hear a little bit more about that next week. Not every church is called to open a student union. I'm grateful we've been given this opportunity because we have the potential through it to serve the common good, to contribute to the betterment of our community. And it's going to offer us as individual Christians opportunities to serve there. So Paul outlines the unhelpful Christian life. The unhelpful Christian is caught up with peripheral issues, with secondary topics, with speculations, which often lead to dissensions and quarrels. The beneficial Christian is concerned with serving the common good in society. Let's look finally at the factor that makes all the difference. Because the question should be coming up, why is Paul putting these two, pitting these two against each other? And in the middle, he's got this section that's explaining the difference between the two and how, we, how one gets to one and, and the other gets to the other. Why should Christians be interested in being law-abiding citizens who work for the common good? Why are we to avoid foolish controversies and internal speculations? Take a look, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So why is Paul so adamant that Christians not get caught up with foolish controversies and speculations? Well, I think these verses are giving us an indicator. Because devoting much energy to speculations runs contrary to gospel mission. Paul's not temperamental. He doesn't get upset at the slightest provocation. Usually when he gets ticked off about something, it's something that's core to the gospel. There's something at stake here with the gospel itself. 
The fact that he's so upset about this, this speculative stuff tells me that stuff is, is gospel drift. The gospel itself has movement outward. This text is talking about that. God appears to us. He comes to us. He initiates us. So the gospel has movement outward. It doesn't stay stationary. To be devoting much energy to foolish controversies and speculations demonstrates we've not really been captured by the gospel itself. That's why he's so fired up about this. Now, in these verses, Paul is describing the nature of the human race in its sinful, fallen, unredeemed state. The human race he describes as sinful, fallen, uh, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. But in spite of that, God showered his goodness and loving kindness out on the human race, and through it, some have been saved, washed, and renewed. That's the gospel. And when the penny drops, it shapes the way we use our energy, our time, and our resources. Now, God has not been good and loving to us because we're lovely people. We have to make sure that we get this, this, what Paul's talking about with God's goodness and loving kindness, we have to get that right if we're going to understand the implications of it for our lives. God has not been good to us and loving to us because we're lovely people. One scholar illustrates this way by imagining a dating couple walking along the beach at the end of the academic year. The sun has made the sand warm. They kick off their sandals. They enjoy this walk. They feel the wet sand squish between their toes. And he takes her by the hand. He looks her in the eye and he says, Sue, I love you. I really do. Now, what does he mean by that? He could mean a lot of things. He may simply mean his hormones are jumping about. He wants to go to bed with her. But the least that he means is that he's attracted to her. He certainly does not mean that he finds her unlovely but loves her anyway. When he says, Sue, I love you, he's in part saying that he finds her lovable. And if he has any sort of romantic twist, this is where it's going to come out. He'll turn to her, he'll say, Sue, the color of your eyes, I could just sink into them. The smell of your hair, the dimples when you smile. There's nothing about you I don't love. Your personality, it's so wonderful. You're such an encourager. You have this laugh that can, that can fill a whole room with smiles. It's so contagious. Sue, I love you. What he does not mean is this. Sue, quite frankly, you're the most homely creature I know. Your bad breath could stop a herd of rampaging elephants. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. You have the personality of Genghis Khan. You don't have any sense of humor. You're a miserable, self-righteous, narcissistic, hateful woman, and I love you. When he declares his love for her, in part, he's declaring that at that moment, he finds her lovely. Now God comes along. He showers his love on us. By loving us, what is God saying? Is he saying, y'all, I love you. Your scintillating personality, your intelligent conversation, your wit, your gift, you're cute. I love you. I can't imagine heaven without you. Is that what God is saying? When God declares his love for us, is he commenting on our lovableness? A lot of people believe so. 
A lot of people who say, look, if God loves us, it must mean I'm okay, you're okay, God says we're okay, he loves us, we must be lovable. But that doesn't really jive with verses 3 to 8, does it? The human race is described as foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, caught up in malice and envy. So when God loves us, is God saying to us instead, morally speaking, you're the people of the crippled knees. You're the people of the moral bad breath. You're the people of the rampaging Genghis Khan personality. You're hateful and spiteful and murderous. And you know what? I love you anyway. Not because you're so lovable, but because I'm that kind of God. And in the flow of thought, God is calling us to be that kind of people in society. Foolish, disobedient people should be the recipients of our goodness and loving kindness because that's what God has done with us. See, in the gospel, Jesus disadvantaged himself in order to advantage those who were foolish and disobedient. Can you do that? Can you disadvantage yourself in order to advantage those who are foolish and disobedient, stuck in malice and envy, slaves to various passions? Can you disadvantage yourself to advantage somebody like that? The moment we open the doors of the student union, we're going to be doing that. We're going to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage those who are foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions, stuck in malice and envy. The factor that makes all the difference in the world is getting God's goodness and love right. God didn't show his goodness and love on us because we're lovely people. God showered his goodness and his love on us because that's the kind of God he is. And he has saved us so we will become that kind of people. Let's pray. Gracious God, preoccupy us with the gospel. Pray we'd never get tired of it. Amaze us again from this text with your love for us. And do so by showing us the vileness of our corruption. You haven't showered your goodness and your love on us because we're lovable. You've done that because that's the kind of God you are. I pray that that would sink in. That you would weave that into the fabric of our spiritual DNA. As we come to understand that more deeply, I pray that you would transform us into a people who are that way with those in our communities who are foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions and stuck in malice and envy. We need your help with that. But we respond to you now in praise and thanks for the kind of God you've demonstrated yourself to be through what you have done for us in Jesus in spite of what we're like. And we lift his name high.
In Jesus' name, amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.